Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education where we aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. We have candid conversations about the education issues that impact your community every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or listen at any time from the comfort of your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know-it-all. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio homepage, so be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education for all students. Keep up with me at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Today we are talking about teenagers. Adolescents have incredibly unique needs. As a mom and as an attorney who has conducted several ob- observations in schools around the country, I certainly have seen developmental patterns that are consistent among children in different age groups. It is remarkable to me when I see my children's eccentricities mirrored in children their ages all over the country. Teenagers are no different in that. There are developmental consistencies that teenagers share. Judge Stephen Teske was a guest on last week's show and talked about how teenagers are still developing. The frontal lobe of their brain is still under construction. So we have to, as adults, allow them room to make what we might think are silly mistakes. We also have to understand that emotional development is just as important as academic. My guests today are here to talk with us about adolescent emotional development and strategies for intentionally guiding emotional development. Dr. Kamal Wright Cunningham is the lead clinical counselor in an alternative high school here in Washington, D.C. Dr. Quentin Graham is a clinical psychologist and the former director of mental health at that alternative school where he also oversaw the social-emotional learning program for the middle school campuses. They both have been instrumental at the school in incorporating social-emotional learning for students and teachers and engaging parents and families in partnership on behalf of the student population, many of whom have experienced significant trauma. Danielle Moody-Mills, a former teacher, is the Director of Education Advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation. She is also an advisor for LGBT policy and racial justice at the Center for American Progress. She's a former federal lobbyist for New York Mayor Bloomberg and the New York City Department of Education, and she's written about health and wellness related to education outcomes for urban and low-income youth. She has been named as one of the Route 100 for 2012. Good morning to all of you. Thank you for joining me. Good Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Dr. Graham, I wonder if you would start us off and, and explain for us what the unique emotional development needs are of adolescents as compared to smaller children or adults. Well, certainly I'll give it a stab and see if I can't come up with something that fits into the overall theme for the program. And first, thank you for inviting me. The number one thing we'd have to consider is adolescence is a time of contradictions. Uh, there are numerous changes that are taking place in the young person physically, emotionally, culturally, and that creates a sense of internal chaos. It is um, it is an extremely taxing time for the young people and for the adults in their lives. 
one of the ways to think about this is that adolescents need an opportunity to experiment with different values, different identities, and beliefs. And that's primarily because the major struggles of this time frame of their lives are to become independent and to establish their own identities. And so they need to try on different things to see how they fit. They need to consider values that uh, adults have communicated to them at earlier points in their lives and to see whether those things make sense, whether they're consistent with their own beliefs and values as they really craft the struggle, how they'll live their lives from this point going forward. Now, this period of time should not occur in isolation from the adults in their lives, although the adolescents make it quite difficult to, to stay connected to them. But it's a point where they really require more communication, more interaction, more opportunity to bounce ideas off people who are invested and interested in them than less. There used to be this notion and idea that as children got older, they required less involvement from the adults in their lives. It seems to me that that's decidedly inaccurate, that um, that the young people are bombarded with cultural messages about how they should live their lives, but they also have insufficient experiences to make these very important decisions. And that finally, the adolescents should receive the amount of independence that they demonstrate can be responsibly managed. Dr. Wright Cunningham, how do you or do you use data to assess emotional wellness in teenagers? Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me on the show. I think at the uh, school that I work at in Ward 7 in the district, um, what sets us apart is our ability to really pay, pay close attention to um, the needs and the emotional stability of the students that come to us. So from the gate, once we establish that the student is a resident of the district and they've been accepted into our program, uh, we have mental health clinicians, so, so our program is a little different in that everyone has at least a master's degree in, in one of the mental health uh, uh, triages, and we use that information to really guide um, and, and develop individual learning plans, individual uh, opportunities to really meet the students where they are. So we have this intense clinical comprehensive intake, and using that information, we talk about everything from the development of the child to what worked before uh, they came to us, what didn't work, and, and we're using that information, again, to really see what kinds of things need to be put in place so that the students can be productive at our at our, our institution. Um, I think another thing that, that really sets us apart from other schools and ways that we use data to access the emotional development is um, looking at some of the undesirable uh, outcomes, so poor attendance, uh, not performing well academically, uh, engaging in um, uh, delinquent activities in the building. We, we really pride ourselves on using that data to kind of uh, backwards map and using that as symptoms and, and addressing them as such. So we really, really, really um, drill down on kind of the things that we want to improve and use that information to really set the students up for the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. Another thing that many schools in the district um, or all schools in the district are, are tasked with doing is is this notion of student support team process. Um, mm -hmm. And so weekly at our school, uh, we hold comprehensive meetings where we invite all the core content area teachers, that's the math, 
science, history, English, as well as exceptional learning teachers, special ed teachers, as well as clinicians, as well as administrators. And that's a time when we really, really, really see what's going on in your class. If we have students that present with, with issues that, that, again, we don't want or that are undesirable, but they're able to manage themselves in some classes, there's something going on in that classroom that's allowing the student to do well. Maybe it's the relationship with the student and the teacher. Maybe it's expectations that the teacher has of the student, um, but really trying to figure out what's working, what's not working, and then putting plans in place so that we can track and monitor um, some of the interventions. Um, we also have developed uh, this notion of tiers of intervention, I'll, and I'll start us off, and, and Dr. Graham will jump in here, but um, the tiers of intervention, as we see it, are, are intended to ensure that students have access to the appropriate clinical services. And so that means that they meet regularly with someone for individual, um, and it also means that we figure out the intensity of which they need to meet with these uh, clinicians. Um, the tiers of interventions is a system designed to help streamline and triage the services so that you know exactly uh, what the student needs and you meet them where they are. And so if you have a student that performs well generally, but they just need daily check-ins or weekly check-ins to just kind of motivate them and keep them on task, that's what they get. Um, but if you have students that uh, escalate really quickly and, 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 and you know, deserve more attention and, and more um, touches, if you will, positive touches by adults in the building, then they get that as well. Um, so really just setting up this notion of tiers where we're looking at attendance, we're looking at behavior, we're looking at um, also academic performance and, and, and kind of seeing where, where they intersect what needs to be worked on, what needs to be supported so that we can, you know, lead to the outcomes that we're looking for. And let me just follow up on that a little bit. The the tier um, system, just to clarify, tier one, essentially every student is a tier one student. Is that right? And then yes, from there, yes. there may need there may be a need for tier two interventions or tier three interventions depending on behavior and social needs. Yes, exactly. Is that right? Yes, that's actually correct. I think the way to think about it is that uh, it's our belief that all students benefit from some um, information uh, regarding social-emotional development. And so the Tier 1 students would be students that are, that are progressing fairly well. What they need is educational information as well as prevention kind of information. So that might well be school-wide assemblies in which the the topics are addressed during those meetings. So, and then, depending upon the need that becomes identified, determines whether they move to tier two or to tier three services. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, Dr. Wright Cunningham, you touched on this a little bit when you said that you meet with the core content teachers every week. How do you get buy-in? And this is for for both of you, Dr. Graham and Dr. Wright Cunningham. How do you get buy-in from the teachers and the staff in the building? to make sure that they are really focusing on the emotional needs of their students rather than just delivering content? Well, I think that um, it's funny because many of, the, many of the teachers seek out that as an opportunity to kind of get support, right? So everyone comes um, with expertise in math, history, science, etc. cetera, um, but when they're faced with challenging students, students that have been disengaged uh, historically, students who have been truant historically, um, you know, many people say, I've worked with tough populations in this city and that city. Uh, but when they're faced with challenges and, and, and they, you know, fail to deliver content, they often are looking for that support, looking for an opportunity to learn about ways to re-engage these students who haven't been successful. And I think that it starts with, um, you know, recognizing even the smallest growth and even, you know, and, and rewarding that as such. So I think 
um, making sure that the, the teachers understand it has to come from leadership down. The teachers have to understand that this is a, a, a movement that the entire general, you know, the entire body has to buy into, that it's important that we not only focus on the academics, but we set the students up so that they're able to regulate in the real world when they leave, you know, our school, so that they're able to make responsible decisions um, and so that they're able to make, you know, possible choices, you know, responsible choices as well. Mm-hmm. Dr. Graham, how do you engage parents and families in partnership with the school to support student emotional development? Well, first, it requires uh, pretty aggressive outreach. Um, I think for students who have not been successful in uh, school environments, oftentimes the relationships with their families is somewhat tenuous. And so it requires some outreach, um, some uh, effort at team building between the families and the school. I think by communicating that uh, there will be efforts made to try to approach the issues in a somewhat diff- in a slightly different way than maybe had been tried before, uh, and uh, and then working it relentlessly. This, it's um, I don't want to suggest that uh, uh, this is simple or it's easy. It is hard work. But if for many of these families, many of their interactions with schools have been less than positive, and so the notion and idea that you can begin to have some positive exchanges and that you want their input, that you want to work with them. Uh, oftentimes can start to shift it. Second thing is that you have to offer some opportunities. We've had occasions and times in the past to offer regularly scheduled parenting meetings, let's call them, uh, groups. Some people call them groups. But the notion is you provide in- information to the parents about working with their young people, that you hear their concerns and their complaints, and it also provides some support for them so they don't feel quite so isolated and alone. I think if you can do those things in combination, then you start to have better relationships between the home and the school. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Uh, Wright, to that point, I'm sorry, I just wanted to add to what Dr. Graham said. I, I think it's important to, and this is uh, really important that we let the, the parents know that we're there for them and that, uh, you know, it's really important that we let them know that we're servants of them. So if they have concerns that maybe we haven't thought about, um, it's important that we allow them that space, a safe uh, environment that we can find out what's going on at home and then and, and be that buffer, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you would speak about other partnerships. Are there, other than parents and families, are there other necessary partners for schools to be working with to support emotional wellness for their teenagers? Absolutely. I think that... Um, for the you know at the particular school that I work at, I think that many of the students come to us with this history, unfortunately, of being court connected. And so, if there are social service agencies that are um, already connected with the young young adults, it's important that we are responsible to them as well. We're informing them. We partner with them. I think if you know the students require uh, mental health. Um, check-ins, if you will, with folks outside of the building that we're, you know, we're keeping them abreast of what's going on at the school as well. Um, so any other community-based organizations or if they're court-connected to just to make sure that they, um, you know, are updated as to what's going on with the with, with the young adults within the building. I think if I could just add quickly, interested and involved adults in the young person's life are people that I would be interested in communicating with, that oftentimes it might be a neighbor, could be a relative, could be a friend. Uh, but if they're involved in the young person's life, then they can, we can work with them as part of a team to really uh, 
um, address the issues confronting the the student and try to turn things around for them. And then is the onus on the school to contact community partners and neighbors and others who might be able to help in supporting the student, or, well, or is it so. a... I think so. Mm-hmm. See, I think part of the difficulty has been, if you if you think about a more traditional school model, it's 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 been, we take ownership at the front door almost, and things mm-hmm. that sit outside of the school are beyond the purview of the school, and 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 I think that that works well, when you have uh, students coming to you, who aren't struggling with this host of issues that many of them come to school with, and it's not just students in the school where um, where I once worked. But in a broader sense, students come to school struggling with all kinds of issues, and they don't check those issues at the door or put them in their locker before they start classes. And so uh, the school, if it truly wants to try to address the students who aren't progressing, has to find ways that we reach outside of the doors to get uh, uh, team members to work with us. That's one of the issues that I think that a lot of schools have is that you cannot legislate engagement of parents mm-hmm. and caretakers yes. and that it really is up to the schools to move outside of just assessing what the students need academically in order to be mm-hmm. successful and understand that as a full package that children really need um, care taking towards their emotional and health, their mental yeah. health well-being. And yeah. that's something that a lot of schools, mainstream schools, um, doesn't sound like your school at all has that difficulty, but it's really tending to all the aspects of a child and not compartmentalizing their needs into solely academic and passing tests and really understanding and how you can develop them to be successful adults. I think that's a that's a great segue, Danielle, and I wonder if you would you would talk to us about some of your efforts to improve health and wellness in communities of color and for low-income families as well. And I, I don't want to conflate those two things. So I, I think that there's a lot of conversation about, you know, children of color, color living in poverty. Um, those are, are, are two separate categories of people. So I want to be clear about that. But you have done work on behalf of, of communities of color and people living in poverty as well. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. One of the issues, um, one of the main issues I think that you find with communities of color specifically is the cultural competency that schools have in dealing with and nurturing um, children that are African American, that are Latino, that are other than um, that are other than Anglo, and it's really understanding that in some cultures. Parents, they bring their kids to school, and then they leave it to the school to engage because the school is the authority. The teachers are the authority. And it's really understanding, one, where those parents and families are coming from and figure out how you can engage them, how you make them feel like they are their, they are their child's first teacher and giving them the tools necessary so that they can help guide both out of school and during school their child's educational process. And when I say educational process, it's not just the academic, which is what we're talking about today, but really how to ask open-ended questions, right, so that you're able to get the answers from your kids about whether or not they're thriving in school. Um, what kind of friends do they have? What kind of um, circle of trust have they have they committed? Are they being bullied? 
Um, and so there are lots of times, and, you know, mainstream uh, culture kind of shows us through television shows that, oh, you go, parents come home and they say, oh, how was your day? And you say, fine. And then they keep going. And okay. so I think that there is a part of the cultural competency level of teachers and administrators to really teach parents how to ask those open-ended questions, how to really engage in what their child is doing, and how to expand a conversation beyond 140 characters of a tweet or text messages and really get to the core of what their child is dealing with day in and day out. Because I think that when we, you know, oftentimes, and then I'll shift to thinking about low-income families, is that low-income families and those that are living at or below the poverty level really are busy people. They are working multiple jobs and they're trying to provide for their families. And the misconception that we hear in uh, in the political arena is that, oh, these parents are not engaged. But they are the most engaged because they're trying to provide for their families. So how are we allowing for student-parent student uh, conferences um, with one another and scheduling a little bit of time together? How are we really creating teacher-parent conferences that are not during the hours of when some parents have to be at work and they, can't, they don't have the, the ability to just take off, right, because that's money that then they're losing. So really understanding the needs of the population that you're trying to reach and finding ways to engage them on their time is something that is really important. Dr. Wright Cunningham, how have you been and, and your team been um, really flexible in making sure that you are addressing all parents and families where they are and, and inviting them into the building? I think that, uh, again, I talked some in the beginning about our intake process. During that process, we really lay out for the parents. Um, we're a different kind of school. We're a school that um, really prides ourselves on figuring out what kinds of prescription you need um, for the ills that you may have come to the school with, um, not passing any judgments and letting them know that, you know, if it's important for you that you need um, us to come to your home, we'll do just that. I think uh, one of the things that we do really well, and, I, and it really stands out to me, is our intense attendance monitoring. And so, so many schools, you know, once students don't come and they miss 20 consecutive days, the school has the right to put student out. Um, but rather at our school, you know, if you miss a day, if you miss a day or two, we're out in the community knocking on doors. And if we hear TVs on and, and no one comes to the door, we'll wait, right, and then we'll knock again. And then once we come in the home, the student says and the parent says, what are you doing here? Hey, I told you when you came in for the intake that we're going to do something different. We're going to approach this a little differently because you need more, and we're here to give you more. So once we go in the, into the home, right away that kind of breaks down you know any any facade or any any barrier that the that the families may have to us um giving them the kind of support that they need and we use that as an opportunity to teach them and just really be uh really be there for them you know when you ask a teacher um what do you teach you know i'm i'm not interested in someone that says i teach math i teach history i teach english i'm looking for someone to say i teach children and so uh the same goes for parents you know we're here for them and so going into the community um inviting them up at any time and letting them know that we don't need an appointment you can come to our school at any time and say i need to meet with my counsel my son's a daughter's counselor i want to meet with an administrator i want to meet with a teacher i want to sit in on a class these are the kinds of things that i know um you know coming from a similar background as some of the students that we serve that was useful for us um 
So just really making ourselves available and going into the community are, are, are two tangible things that we found to be beneficial and, and things that have worked for us. Danielle, will you talk about your your lobbying efforts on Capitol Hill? How have you lobbied members of Congress to improve emotional well-being for adolescents? That's a great question. Um, one of the problems, I'll start with the problems, because when you're talking about Congress, that's generally what, how you start. <laughs> um, one of the issues in, in, in trying to convince uh, legislators um, about the needs of students beyond academics is that they are about compartmentalizing issues. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really dealing with right now is competitiveness. Competitiveness, and you hear science, technology, engineering, and math, and competitiveness. So when I go into these uh, offices, when I go into members' offices to meet with them to talk about um, emotional well-being and being able to to have that in order for kids to be competitive, you talk about, I tell stories. I essentially say, how can we expect America's children to be competitive when their foundation is shaky, when we don't provide them with the ability to take a break during the day, when it's Mm. constant drill, 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 and there's no recess? There are over 40% of schools in this country that don't have any breaks for kids during the day. Can you imagine sitting at your desk all day without being able to get up to absolutely not to take a deep wow. breath <laughs> to just you know just to move your body because you need to do that and we that is what we are um, telling our kids that they have to do. You need to pass this test so for eight hours we're going to keep you in this desk and we're going to drill, 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 drill. Otherwise, my school may get closed down. Otherwise, I may lose my job. And that's the, trying to move legislators in a way of that's not the way that we become competitive. That's not the way that we get to a level of success that we need to strengthen our economy. We have to care for the whole child. So that is the conversation that I have is really saying we have to look at the whole child, not just the test score. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a lot of the pushback that I get, well, that's not government's job. Right? Mm-hmm. Government's job is not to parent. Government's right. job is not to um, be a full-fledged community center. Right? Mm-hmm. But then really understanding and saying, well, wait a minute. How can you expect a child to achieve and be, be the next generation of innovators when they're sleeping in class because they have nowhere to go, because they don't have a home to go to, because they're living in a car, because they're coming to school hungry, and then you're trying to, you're trying to feed them all of this education and all of this information, and they're doing it on an empty stomach. Like So those are the kind of connections and the stories that I tell of why we need programs that are providing not only food but nutritious food, right? Because how can you learn when you're filled with French fries and macaroni and cheese and all of these things that are weighing you down, you know, both physically and emotionally? So really my job as an advocate is to help legislators connect the dots and see that they can't just tackle one issue, especially when we're dealing with um, our youth and their edu- their full, complete education, that they can't just deal with one aspect at a time, that they have to take a step back and look at the complete and total picture. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you bring up STEM and, and this focus on STEM recently. I, th- I had a 
conversation with a friend of mine this weekend, um, and she's in you know the, the technology world and um, a very successful black woman. And she says you know she travels the world and and um, gives speeches about technology. And very rarely are there um, you know black people and and um, young black people in the audience. And she talks about how there is this this government push for STEM and and you know putting science, technology, engineering, and math programs in school. Um, but it is very difficult and probably impossible to do that without talking about the emotional picture for children and all children in this country and mental health and where we are as a nation and, and how we are stressing children, um, you know, beyond their their capacity. Um, and then, you know, you have children who are then competing and you're putting in STEM programs and talking about college readiness, but... You know, Google isn't necessarily hiring people that are going to college anymore. You know, they're hiring people right. that are coming out of high school and creating successful businesses because they have tremendous supports at home and tutoring and other things that, you know, they're getting that outdoor time and they're they're mentally um, capable of, of really kind of grasping the idea of being an entrepreneur. Um, Dr. Graham, how do you see that we should be equipping children, particularly children of color, um, mentally and emotionally in order to, to not just kind of achieve at the base standard level, but to really excel um, in areas, whether it's STEM or anything else? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think the shift in the conversation where it focuses on wellness, which is more inclusive of several different areas, is one of the key criteria. It represents the change in our thinking, or let's say the evolution in our thinking as well, that we needed to broaden out the definition. Mental health is one of the components of wellness, but you have to have those other elements in place as well. Because I think that what it really speaks to is where and how the self-confidence and view that that you hold of yourself where where does that get developed and nurtured and groomed and encouraged because you need that to take the risk that allow you to uh possibly fail which is the key for all for all entre entrepreneurs is that willingness to take those risks so if you operate from a very narrow safe band where you're only interested in trying those things with which you're familiar or you're only interested in trying those things you're confident you're going to you're going to successfully complete then you 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 ax out so many other possibilities for you so by focusing on wellness by focusing on uh the foundational pieces of how we c come to think of ourselves as competent beings in the world that's how we really start to encourage this notion and idea that you can have entre entre entrepreneurs we've seen evidence in um in some communities of color where where folks who potentially could be entrepreneurs get drafted off into um less than legal kinds of circumstances, but they're showing the same kind of entrepreneurial skills as, as folks who come from other communities. If we can start early enough, and I think that's another piece here, that we have to really look to start working with uh, students and their families at, at earlier stages. I'm reminded of two things very quickly. I just read in the paper um, the other day about sort of a consortium of people did a study on youth in the District of Columbia and pointed out that only three in ten, I believe it was, uh, uh, young people are ready to enter kindergarten or first grade, sort of at the at the proper readiness level. Okay. That's a big issue. You're starting school out behind already, so that that that's kind of huge. The second thing is that 
There's a study that was done a few years ago where a group of researchers from uh, Johns Hopkins um, followed a group of sixth graders from sixth grade through the time they were to uh, graduate from high school. And what they found is that there were four there were four indicators that, that indicated whether they would complete high school on time or not. Attendance, discipline, and uh, being on grade level in reading or math, that those things really predicted with a scary degree of accuracy the students who would uh, complete high school on time. And so it says to me that we have to really focus, starting at an earlier point, that we have to broaden out what we've been doing. Clearly, drilling and redrilling on basic academic material hasn't been the answer. And right. so we have to rethink this some is what I would say. We also need to stop treating our youth as criminals. Mm -hmm. Just okay. last month, um, the New York Times and several other uh, several other outlets reported, um, and I don't, and I would love to hear uh, the doctors and what and what you think. Reported, um, there's a report that came out on the Mississippi school um, district, and essentially how they are disciplining their students and sending them to prison. This, this, the pipeline to, to, to prison issue, and they're handcuffing students, and their disciplinary actions are so harsh. And when you look at the student body there, they're mostly black and brown children. And when you talk about having to lay this foundation of self-esteem um, and encouraging kids, well, when we have to look at the environment and the climate at which they're trying to learn. Is it one that is really about um, lifting students up and, and opening the doors of opportunity and letting them know that education does indeed do that and that their health and wellness play a very big part in that? Or do we, do we treat our youth and adolescents who are just a few years away from being considered legal adults as criminals? Mm -hmm. And we penalize them at the rate that we would if they were in a juvenile detention facility, except they're in a high school. And so right. really thinking about, about that and what that does emotionally to these kids that are supposed to be looked at as the next generation of workers and, lead, and thought leaders and innovators and think about what kind of climate we're sending them to school in. That's right, and, and it's not just Mississippi. It's, it's all over the country that, you know, you see children who are arrested out of school for, mm -hmm. you know, minor transgressions or um, being ticketed even by police. And, you know, we see this in, in states like Texas and California where, where police are in the schools handing out tickets for, you know, what are really infractions of the student discipline code, but, but not the criminal code that the police officers are um, sworn to enforce. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, uh, you're absolutely right, Danielle, that, that we certainly have to think about our mindset when it comes to children. Are we putting police in schools to protect children because right. we value them as, um, as really, you know, integral parts of, of our community and society? Or are we putting police in schools to police the children and to create a, a state of, of um, you know, almost warfare in our schools and with our children. Um, and, you know, I think that um, someone recently said, Paul Gorski, professor at George Mason University, recently said that um, when you talk about police in schools, you have to talk about police in schools with children who are privileged and children who, who 
who don't have the same privileges as other children. And so when you go into a school that is a privileged school and you see security, um, they're almost invisible to the student population, you know, so the, the children really don't see the school security officers and they're not an integral part of the the, the school culture. Um, and then when you go into other environments, you there's almost an oppressive sense of mm-hmm. that police pre- presence. Um, and I know that social emotional learning is something that um, that educators have been using to really kind of change that mindset of of how we think of our children. And Dr. Graham, you've been instrumental. Both of you, Dr. Cunningham, have been um, instrumental at really incorporating social emotional learning in schools. And Dr. Hector Montenegro was on the show recently and discussed his work with social emotional learning and, and explained that it is of benefit not only to the students but really also for the staff. And I wonder, Dr. Graham, if you would first explain what social-emotional learning is and, and then tell us why and how it is useful for combating this mentality of children as criminals. Sure. Uh, social-emotional learning is the um, process through which children and adults acquire the skills that allow them to recognize and manage their emotions. It allows them to demonstrate caring and concern for other people, to establish positive relationships, make responsible decisions, and handle challenging situations effectively. So if you think about it, those are the skills that sit underneath uh, being a responsible, productive citizen. And people who are responsible, productive citizens typically have mastered these skills. Now, the the, uh, social-emotional learning movement believes that if these skills aren't present, as they are for some people, both adults as well as students, they can be intentionally taught and that you can teach these skills and they can be learned um, uh, just as any other skill can be. So the way it connects to this notion around um, uh, um, criminalizing uh, violations of school conduct is, is that you're looking to really create a climate within the school that really communicates a certain set of values to which you hold all members of that school community, the adults as well as the children, that you look at your policies that you develop around these values that that are commonly shared, and you want to make sure that the way in which you're trying to enforce these values don't really push the students who seem not to be buying into it, push them out of the school, because that's what some of the policies do. When When you look at many of the zero-tolerance movements where the idea is that you exclude students when they violate some school policy, essentially you're pushing them out, and at some point they get the message and they stop showing up. Mm-hmm. But but I think that what you want to try to do instead is that you want to have responses and consequences uh, that that really reinforce the values that you would like your whole school community to to demonstrate that it really places some emphasis upon uh, there's sort of a collective responsibility and and that each and every member of that school community has some obligation to be concerned or to reach out to other members, particularly if they see them off off message as far as the values of the of the uh, school. So you can teach these social emotional learning skills through a variety of ways, and that's what makes them kind of um, Useful so that uh, teachers in your literature or your history or your science classes can really talk about some of these elements that have to do with um, responsible decision making, that have to do with values and beliefs, that have to do with how 
how you approach and understand other people. All of those things can be built into your overall school program in in ways that would emphasize the message and values that sometimes uh, school communities pay lip service to or it or it applies to some students but not all students. And then I think it also allows you to look at the the deviation from the values and to um, view these deviations as indications of something else going on and then it's the school's responsibility to better understand what that something else is and then try to devise interventions. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wright Cunningham, can you talk about um, how you try to make emotional wellness a focus of your school's discipline program and, and what you do as a counselor to advocate on behalf of children who are who are being punished in the school? Yes, ma'am. So I think that um, it's important that you have uh, someone on the administrative team that, you know, is going to push this agenda at all times. And I think that what you'll find is that, um, you know, when, when SEL or social-emotional learning is working um, with, you know, in, incredible fidelity, it's a whole school movement. This isn't a counseling thing. This isn't a mental health thing. Um, I'm actually often amazed when I, you know, hear some of the conversations that uh, security staff have with our, our young folks or with, uh, you know, some of the young ladies in the cafeteria have because they can impress upon the young adults uh, the kinds of messages that they might not have gotten at home. Um, but as it pertains specifically to discipline, it's important that, you know, the students feel that they're safe and nurtured at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for many students, they, they don't have opportunities where people say to them, you know, I missed you yesterday. I didn't see you in class. Or, you know, you did a good job today. I saw you, you know, you're about to get into it with another student, and you were able to step away and realize that the bigger picture is you're moving towards graduation. Um, so, you know, even when students do things that would normally get them suspended or normally get them some sort of infraction, it's important that there's, you know, restorative justice practices put in place so that the student can use that opportunity um, as a learning opportunity and then they could make better decisions uh, moving forward. Um, You know, I believe that the school resource officer is a a great opportunity, you know, not to involve uh, the police per se, even though that person might be, you know, a police officer, but really allowing the school resource officer uh, to be someone that the students can look to if they, you know, for safety, number one, and also just to make sure that things are maintained within the building, not as someone that might be profiling or what have you. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really think being intentional about um, the messages that the entire, you know, uh, adult population in the building from, you know, cafeteria to, to maintenance to teachers to, you know, et cetera. Um, I, I think it's really important that we do that. And, you know, in terms of school rules, you know, being consistent is really important. Many of these, uh, you know, students, or, you know, many students and young adults in, in, in general, as Dr. Graham alluded to in the intro, you know, it's a time of chaos. It's a time of contradiction. So being consistent and fair uh, is important because these are the kinds of things that are going to foster, um, you know, emotional wellness in them um, and so that they can model these for their children uh, in the future. I think that being intentional, too, before tragedy actually strikes is also what is missing right now in in our school yep. systems. It seems that we have conversations about mental health and wellness after something bad happens mm-hmm. as opposed to that being a part of the culture and the curriculum of a school. 
And what we have, and that's that's kind of our society, right, is that we have these conversations in the midst of tragedy, and then we move on, we move from there and make decisions um, when we shouldn't be making decisions because we're in the midst of grieving. And that is how we get um, police in schools and doing these things is when something bad occurs, instead of saying, how are we creating a curriculum that breeds responsibility and self-esteem and we are really creating an environment for the next generation of leaders and i don't think that that is how we look at schools right now we look at them as depositories of for information and not um climates of creativity and and mm-hmm. development and that is one of the things that we need to do as we look to the reauthorization of the No Child Left Behind Act, which is what in 2001 ushered in um, assessments and testing in schools and started rating schools based on whether or not their students were able to pass, is really expanding the idea of what, is, what kind of curriculum we need and what are we looking at in it, not just being math and science, but being civics, because how are we creating the next responsible citizen? Um, and, and, how does, and how does academics play into that? Um, and so and that I, is I something think- that's really important. Right, and I I think that that touches on a point that you made earlier, Danielle, which is that, you know, we have this tendency to want to compartmentalize and that we want to think about, um, you know, addressing tragedy instead of kind of creating a holistic environment of well-being for all of the people in the school building, you know, adults and children alike. Um, And I think that, you know, even when you talk about student discipline, and and this is what you were talking about, Dr. Wright Cunningham, when you put – you know, you have a lot of conversations about positive behavior supports and about response to intervention and about restorative justice and, and social-emotional learning, and there are separate discussions happening about each one. But, you know, what you have said is that you can use them all together. They all kind of work together very well to create an overall culture of support for children so that they can be successful emotionally and thus be perform well academically as well. Um, and I wonder, Danielle, if you would talk about your Be Out There campaign as a, a piece of this, you know, making us all just better, more healthy. Yeah. Um, what the National Wildlife um, Federation uh, we have is an, an ongoing campaign called the Be Out There campaign. And the Be Out There campaign essentially provides parents, teachers, and caregivers with tools to help kids better get connected with nature. And what we understand from that is that when children are outdoors anywhere, they don't have to live within a walking distance to a national park because many of us don't. You have to drive there. But in green spaces, that's part of like rehabbing neighborhoods so that there are walkable and there are parks and what have you. But when we learn that when kids are connected with nature, their stress level reduces right? Mm -hmm. They don't need all of the medications that we seem to fill children up with when they just have the essential, that break that I was talking about earlier, to really connect with nature, see what's going on. And there are ways to do that. And so the Be Out There campaign gives parents and caregivers tools how to take your kids outside, what to do with them once they're out there. Because we have a generation of kids that 
have no connection with the outdoors the way that their parents did, the way that their their other caregivers did. I used to come home from school and ride my bike, and my mother, you know, with the street lights, come come home and you know come back uh, when the street lights come on, and have that time to be outside and playing with your friends and walking around and riding bikes and doing all these things. Kids don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And not only is it affecting their mental well-being, right, and their ability to interact with one another, but we see that um, physical health-wise that they are having more issues. We're talking about obesity and we're talking about type 2 diabetes and all of these other issues because when we were young, we didn't think about playing as exercise, playing as the first key in mental health, right, and keeping ourselves at this calm um, connected space. It was just called being a kid. Well, kids today, the 21st century kids, don't have that. They don't have that that um, barometer um, to look at. So the Be Out There campaign really tries to connect families um, and teachers and students with this um, with with nature as just this the the classroom that you don't have to pay for. But what we notice is that there are lots of places that don't have safe green spaces. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. So who, what neighborhood has the green parks? What neighborhood has the walking trail? What neighborhood has the bike path? You know, and, and those are things that we need to think about. When kids are able to go outside, whether you're in, um, in high school and you're able to kind of go outside for a little bit to um, hang out with your friends, is, are you doing it on asphalt or are you doing it on grass? Are you able to breathe in fresh air, or do you have the diesel bus fumes that are speeding by you? All of these things are connected, and like I said earlier, compartmentalizing them is part of the problem. We actually have a caller. Um, Matthew has a question for our guest. Matthew? I do. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, there were some points that uh, I just I'm just catching the tail end of this this show uh, because I I was doing some research and I noticed that uh, there are more teen suicides in America now than than soldiers that have been lost in the Afghan war. That's very troubling to me. And the reason why I say that and I'm listening to this the bad curriculum and uh, the, uh, I think one of your guests said something about uh, school resource officer. Now, me, I, I'm a former police officer, and the, the school resource officer being in a school, yeah, that's great for, um, and I'm going to use, uh, the, this is the only way I know how to explain it, but that's a good publicity for law enforcement and for the school board. There is not very, uh, me coming from that side and listening to the statements of, are you really serious? Like, we're really going to go to a cop in a school, okay? The curriculum is bad nowadays. We're looking at these children that are coming out that are that are doing these horrendous things. Seventy percent of the teens nowadays from 13, starting at 13 to 18, 70 percent are, are watching Internet porn. Okay, I'm going to say that this curriculum is bad is and now, of course, I'm going to go on the God standpoint because I stand on Christ and we've kicked God out of schools. And so the curriculum is bad. I wonder why. I mean, I'm I'm listening to this show and I haven't heard one. I've heard a bunch of excuses and a bunch of of uh, dispositions, but I haven't heard anything about God. Why? Well, I, 
I think um, Matthew has a valid po- a couple of valid points, and, and one is that you know we're not going to get rid of school security officers. I think you know we've reached the tipping point with that. Um, and how do we make sure that we're incorporating them in the school environment um, in a way that is will contribute to nurturing our children? Um, Dr. Graham, what do you think about that? Well, um, I think uh, Matthew shared a sort of a, a big load of things here. I think that um, it is possible, depending upon how closely you're able to work with your school resource officer, to really have make that person an effective member of your school team. I think one of the difficulties comes in when you, uh, as was mentioned earlier, when you compartmentalize and the officer only works on, uh, quote, police in close quote uh, kind of matters. I think when you make them a part of your team, you can actually can you actually can be successful. I think that uh, it is true that teen suicides are are going up. It goes back to what I talked earlier about teen years being very chaotic years, and when students are left to their own devices, uh, that you end up with um, uh, un- unfortunately you end up with solutions that seem to make perfect sense to a young person, but. Um, it's based upon their notion and idea of long term, which is usually like a couple of weeks or something like that. So, so I really feel like um, the battle around sort of including religion within the school curriculum, I think, is a is sort of a much larger kind of discussion and and argument. I I take the point that some people would view that as being one of the major omissions, but I think that there are some other things that that we as a community could also make sure that we're including within the within the school um, uh, um, that could address some of these issues as well. Great. Well, I wonder if, if um, in the last or so that we have left, if we could talk about um, you know what what parents and communities should know. Um, so, Danielle, will you talk about? What parents and community members should know about, you know, lobbying, lobbying their members of Congress or their representatives to improve outcomes for their own children? I'll say that um, parents and community members, what they need to do is understand that their voice matters and that your legislator, your representative will listen to you that calling them and writing letters and scheduling meetings at your district office matter to talk about education and holding them accountable and asking them, where do you stand on health and wellness in schools? How can we make that as important as academics? And going in there and bringing in and saying, this is the school district that my my child goes to. And I notice that they don't have recess. They don't have a break in the day. What can we do about that? You know, where do you rate that on a level of importance? And and really hold their members accountable and understand that their voice matters. When when people call their members' offices, when they go to their city council meetings, when they go to their um, chamber of commerce, all of these things, all of these levels of engagement matter. And what we need to do is constantly hold our representatives accountable and let them know that we are watching and we are listening and we want we want better for all of our kids, not just a section and, and proportion of them. And Dr. Wright Cunningham, will you just talk to us a little bit about what um, parents and community members can do to help support teachers and help support counselors and help support the schools in um, developing emotionally healthy people? 
Yes, ma'am. So I think um, the first thing I want to say is just being visible within the building. I think that parents need to know that uh, schools are servants of, you know, of the children, and so they should feel encouraged um, to come up at any point um, to really make sure that they have a stake in the educational process for their child within the school. Now, after school hours, I think it's also important that the education doesn't stop. And so, you know, if there are opportunities for parents to reinforce what the child learned in school that day, it would be incredibly important for that to happen. And if there's a situation where a parent, you know, doesn't have uh, the ability to reinforce, say, the math or the reading or the science or what have you, um, you know, I, I think they should be, you know, feel encouraged to actually reach out to the teachers and reach out to the school community so that they can get that kind of support so that they can actually continue the education at home. Um, I think that's that's huge, you know, being visible, letting the child know that they're there for them, supporting them, and, you know, that they acknowledge that they're going to make mistakes, but using those mistakes not as something that's going to hinder them, but rather as a, as a springboard or a platform for them to grow. Wonderful. I want to thank you all so much for participating in the show today. This was very, very helpful. Dr. Kamal Wright Cunningham is the lead clinical counselor at an alternative high school here in D.C. You can find him or email him at kamal.w.cunningham at gmail.com. Dr. Quentin Graham is a clinical psychologist and former director of mental health at that alternative school and helped oversee the social-emotional learning program for the middle school campuses there. Danielle Moody-Mills is a, a, the director of education advocacy at the National Wildlife Federation. You can find her on Twitter. Um, read her lifestyle blog at 3lol.com or listen to her radio show, which is on Thursday nights. Is that right, Danielle? Yes, it is. Palatini on bliss.fm every Thursday evening. Thank you all so very much for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We're now officially certified know-it-alls on emotional wellness in adolescence. Go forth and share. Have a wonderful week. Join us next Tuesday, February 12th, when we will talk with Aisha Moody-Mills about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender children in schools and how we can best protect them. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.